Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. This podcast is brought to you by SavingYouTaxes.com and hosted by Jay Barry Watts. As an advanced tax strategist and enrolled agent federally licensed by the IRS, Barry is uniquely qualified to go deeper into the Internal Revenue Code than most accountants. He understands and interprets its provisions explaining how they'll help you reduce income taxes you owe so you can direct that previously wasted tax money into tax-free accounts that you can enjoy in your retirement years. Now, on today's episode. What kind of credentials does your financial advisor have? Is he or she an RR, registered representative, a stockbroker, a CFP, certified financial planner, a CHFC, chartered financial consultant, a CFA, chartered financial analyst, a CIMA, that's C-I-M-A, by the way, certified investment management analyst, and AAMS, Accredited Asset Management Specialist, a CLU, Chartered Life Underwriter, or one of dozens of other designations. And really, what difference does it make? And if you're working with an advisor with a credential of some type, what might cause your retirement plan to fail anyway? These and more are the topics that J. Barry Watts dives into on this edition of The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. Hello and welcome to TTATR. Yes, the truth about taxes and retirement. I thought we just should keep the uh, acronyms going at least briefly today. My name is Barry Watts. I'm your host now in my 28th year in finance, retirement, investment, and taxes. And in those 28 years, I've accumulated a long list of initials that can go after my name and once did. But I don't use any of them anymore because people don't know what they mean. I personally simply prefer to be known as a tax strategist and retirement designer because those terms are easier for people to understand. So today on the podcast, we're going to talk not just about all of these initials, what they mean, where they come from, and and how you should look at them and what kind of credentials you want your advisor to have. But we're going to talk a little bit about what causes financial plans and retirement plans in particular uh, to go ashore up on the beach to get grounded out, messed up, blown up, and not be successful. So all that kind of wraps up in our topic today. Yes, ma'am. And Perry, I do have a question. Go all, ahead. These, all these credentials, do you have to study for each one or do you just take a, a quickie, you know, Yes and no test. Oh, well, great question. And it depends on which credential. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit because some of the credentials are, are oh, sort of the equivalent of studies at the master's degree level in college. And some of the credentials, um, you write a check and somebody sends you a certificate and you hang it on your wall and congratulations, you are somebody. And you can marry people, right? Uh, well, exactly. Actually, great <laughs> point. That's a super thing to to bring up because, well, well, there's a lot of goofiness in our laws about that. You re- you've already derailed me now. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's goofy that the government's in the marrying business, frankly, uh, but the government is and, and, and requires that you be recognized by your uh, religious group as uh, authorized to solemnize marriages is the way that works, in case you didn't know. Because I am authorized to solemnize marriages because, you know, in, in my previous life, uh, mm-hmm. over 30 years ago, I actually worked as a minister. And I have a graduate degree in theology. 
So uh, that that whole topic is kind of interesting to me, but I do think it's goofy today that uh, Joe the plumber and Bob the transmission repairman and everybody else has uh, sent twenty bucks to somebody uh, on the internet who's right. forget and they are ordained and uh, they aren't. I'm just telling you. But anyway, I don't really care if they want somebody like that to marry them. Get after it. God bless you. I hope that works well. So <laughs> what's that have to do with all the credentials and initials in the financial industry? Well, um, it kind of works like this. For a long time, the financial services industry had just two kinds of people in it. You were either a stockbroker, which is also known as a registered representative or an insurance agent. And that was it. But about 25 years ago, it became fashionable to put initials after your name. Now, I don't know who did it first, but somebody started putting an initial after their name, and that made them seem more important than somebody who didn't have initials after their name. And suddenly the race was on. And so today it's not unusual to see people with three or four or five different initials after their name. I think the most I've seen is about 10, but really that's just ridiculous. Because the certification represented by those initials may or may not be good or valid. And no matter how good it is, the average person has no idea what the certification means and whether it makes the financial industry any more credible, competent, and trustworthy than anybody else. Um, So I don't use any of those credentials. And I don't think you should put your trust in someone just because they have an initial after their name. So let's talk about how this all got started. Prior to 1969, pretty much all you had were stockbrokers who worked for brokerage houses and who were trained more as salesmen than as advisors. And notice I said men, because finance wasn't really a woman's world back in those days. Today, I'm guessing maybe 50% of the people in the financial industry might be women, but it wasn't so back in the 1960s. Now, those stockbrokers we're talking about were registered with the SEC, and they represented different brokerage houses like Dean Witter and E.F. Hutton and Merrill Lynch. And so because they were registered with the SEC to represent these brokerage houses, they were called registered representatives. And remember E.F. Hutton and Dean Witter, my God, those are names from the past. Those are names from the past. Actually, people listening to our podcast aren't going to know who those are. I try not to use contemporary names, although Merrill Lynch is still a contemporary name. Um, but, and who was it that, uh, when he spoke, everybody listened, that was Was that E.F. Hutton. Yeah. Yeah. So the old commercial used to say when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen, right? It was really cool. It was a, it was a, it was a bold kind of commercial and EF Hutton. I don't know what happened to him. Somebody bought him, gobbled him up. They went broke or whatever. And uh, a lot of these companies have gone away over the years. Um, So in 1969, there were 13 men again from the industry who got together in Chicago and they began discussing how to professionalize the industry and enhance its education, its testing, its ethic requirements. And they created what was known as the international association for financial planners. And then they created the College for Financial Planning. And so by 1972, they'd enroll their first students. And in 1973, the first CFPs, Certified Financial Planners, were minted. I personally became a certified financial planner two decades ago, a little more than that. And I held that designation for a number of years until I finally let it go because I wasn't learning anything new from that group. And I was having to pay upwards of $1,000 a year to sit through boring classes taught by people who'd never actually counseled clients 
and then uh, also pay to renew my license. And I just thought, decided it wasn't worth me to keep the designation. And so I let it go and I'm no longer a member of the CFP board. Now, an interesting fact uh, that relates to that, I live in an area of over a half million people in the metropolitan statistical area. Uh, and when I became a CFP, I was only the third person in that area who had this credential. Today, there are a few hundred people in the area who have that credential. They're everywhere because there's been a rush to credentials, which I think is a bit of a mistake. And the reason I do is because competency is much more important than credentials. But nevertheless, I'm tilting at windmills. It is what it is. So kind of that first and still a dominant credential is the CFP. And it's a good credential. I think that the two or three years of education that it requires is good and helpful. And the couple of days of testing required, very similar to a lawyer sitting for a bar exam or a doctor sitting for medical boards, that testing is good. And it requires people to write up a case and tell what they would do with this particular situation. And that's a very good exercise to determine who gets the credential. And when we're hiring in our advisory firm, WealthCare, we like to hire CFPs or people who are willing to continue their education and become CFPs. But at some point, very skilled consultants actually outgrow the CFP, in my opinion. And there does come a time when you want to be working with someone who, frankly, has a little gray hair. And when they speak to your situation, open their mouth, uh, kind of wisdom begins to fall out. And you get that they get it and that they aren't just parroting the lines that they learned in the classes that they studied a few years ago. Now, back to the CFP. Here's an interesting thing about it. You know, those 13 men got together, you remember, and they created this organization to create the CFP. They're obviously smart guys, great industry professionals, and they established the CFP. But here's the funny part. They did not trademark the term financial advisor. And, and as a result, anyone with the simplest license, the basic entry-level insurance agent, can legitimately call themselves a financial advisor. Uh, so here, here's a funny story that comes out of that. In fact, this morning as I was driving into work, I heard an ad on the radio for a company, a financial company I'd never heard of before. And uh, I, I Googled it to see who it was because the ad said, you know, we can do everything for you. We'll change the, we'll rotate your tires, change your spark plugs, do your estate plan, invest your IRA, <laughs> start a new retirement plan for you, help you save on taxes. We'll just do clean your toilet, everything for you. And I'm like, what is this? And so I Google up this really, really, really bad website. And the first thing it says on it is the guy's name. And then underneath it, it says, financial advisor. Now he doesn't have any of those credentials, but he calls himself a financial advisor. So you just have to be aware that, that there's nobody out there saying who can and who can't use the word financial advisor. And so a caveat emptor is important. Buyer beware. Does that go for the phrase financial planner as well? I believe that it will be the same thing. Yes. Because, wow. because they did not, uh, did not uh, categorize either of those terms and get them trademarked. And so, oh, so there wow. are people who say this, who, who, you know, they don't really know much. Maybe they got a license to sell insurance, life insurance only, but they can call themselves a financial advisor. Now the CFP takes an investment of money and time. You ask about this, Patrice, it takes money and time, two to three years. Uh, to study and uh, obtain the CFP, you have to sit for the examination. 
And so over the years, there's been a proliferation of credentials that have come, I'm sorry, of initials, I should say, that have come down the pike. And most of them are good, and they focus on this aspect or that aspect of the financial world. But some of those credentials are fake. Um, There are people who don't want to do the hard work and pay the money and invest the time to get credentials. So uh, they just start putting initials after their name. Uh, There's one case in the financial industry where a person started charging people, and I think it was something like $75 or $100, and he would send them a certificate that said they were a certified this or a certified that, and they could hang it on their wall. Well, today with uh, your laptop computer, you could just design your own certificate, take it down to Kinko's and print your own and make yourself certified. And nobody is the wiser necessarily, but you will be wiser if you let those people start guiding and directing you and you discover that they know less about it than you do. So, And too late. Uh, beg your pardon? And you find out too yeah, late. Yeah, it's too late in the process. That's exactly right. So um, there are initials that are actually even more rigorous than the CFP. Uh, the CFA, the Chartered Financial Analyst, is one of those. It's a very math-intensive kind of credential, qualifies a person really to dismantle an investment and understand all of its parts, but CFAs aren't necessarily skilled at helping clients project into the future and plan and retire and manage taxes and plan their estates, which are all things that I find necessary as a part of our consulting practice. So a CFA would not be well-suited necessarily to what we do without a whole nother set of skills, but they would be very good at popping the hood on an investment and finding the nuts and bolts and spark plugs and odd little things down in there that another person might uh, not know about. So here's my advice to you. You should, as you're interviewing advisors, talking with them, thinking about who to go with, you should ask your advisor uh, about their credentials. And if they start with CFP or CFA or CPA, that's a good start. But they aren't the be all, end all. Ask them how they got their credentials and ask them who credentials them. Ask them how they stay abreast of all the changes in the financial industry and the changes in tax regulation. Ask them about their continuing education process. And then check out their answers and see if they seem legitimate. Um, Another thing that you might ask is, what makes you different from a financial product salesperson? That's really, now when you ask that question, you're really getting them right down where they live. What makes you different from a financial product salesperson? And just see how they respond. If they seem flustered, or they get red-faced, that's the sign that they aren't the right person for you and that they are a financial salesperson and that you are a target for a big commission that they're hoping to score. And they're just using maybe a credential on the wall to get to that big commission. So you want to seek an advisor who has experience instead of someone who's newly minted. That would be one of my first pieces of advice. Uh, Gray hair matters in this business. And and that's convenient for me because that's all I have anymore (laughs) is gray hair. I remember early, early, early in my career when I didn't have any gray hair and, and, uh, you know, people always would comment on the fact that I was so young and I wanted some gray hair. And then one day kind of overnight in my early thirties, it all went gray. It's been gray ever since. Uh, and now everybody thinks I'm older than I am. They'll ask me when I retired. And of course, I'm still a decade and a half away from that, probably. Uh, but they offer you respect. Come on, don't they offer you respect? <laughs> Perhaps sometimes a little bit. And occasionally I do get the senior discount, you know. Uh, when, and so, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, as you know, that, Without being yeah, asked. that begins to happen in your mid-50s. And so I qualify. I, technically, I do qualify for the senior discount in most places. 
Um, but you, know, you want to look for somebody who's not newly minted, who's got some experience. And then you might ask them, tell me about your typical client. Tell me about your largest client. What is the most complex case that you have worked with? Ask them to tell you about a client relationship that failed. Ah, Why did it fail? Is there anything you did wrong? What would you have done differently in that relationship? And in all of that, you should get a sense of whether they're being open and genuine with you. Now, I don't have people hardly ever ask me any of those kinds of questions. Happy to talk about them as long as people want to talk about them. But I think people kind of know in my practice, by the time they get to me, uh, they've read enough, studied enough. They sort of know who I am and they came looking for me and wanting my help. Uh, but not everybody's that way. Some folks are in the earlier stages of building their professional practice. And if that's the case, hopefully those uh, questions will help you uh, in your search. And if you don't have someone that you like working with and you want to call us, well, we can help you. We have a tax consulting company called American Tax Strategies. It's found on the web at www.savingyoutaxes.com. And that company has tax strategy experts like enrolled agents and accounting and tax compliance experts like certified public accountants. And then we have an investment advisory firm called Wealthcare that designs retirements and manages assets in the financial markets. And we have an insurance agency that helps people with LERP plans and Medicare supplements and long-term health care plans and programs. So if you don't have someone you want to work with, we can help you. We have clients from border to border and coast to coast, and we're happy to talk with you and see if it's a good fit and whether we believe we can add value to you. So uh, find our phone number by going to www.savingyoutaxes.com. And there you'll be able to find the number and call our office and uh, whoever answers the phone will set up a time for you and me to have a discovery call and see how and whether we can be of help to you. Now, Patrice, it's important for you to understand that just because you have an advisor with some initials after their name doesn't mean that you'll automatically have a good retirement. So I want to finish today's podcast by talking about why retirement budgets fail. And the quick answer to that question is because the budget planning was inadequate in the first place. So when you meet with a financial advisor, the first question that they ought to ask you early, it doesn't have to be the first question, obviously, but early in the conversation, they ought to ask you about your budget in retirement. Now, the way I ask the question is this, how much after-tax income will you need each year in retirement? Duh. Almost always. Yeah. Well, I get that. That ain't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that, that's not an acceptable answer. You must be able to tell your advisor what you need in monthly income after taxes in order to retire. And it never ceases to amaze me that people will approach retirement without thinking about this number. And when I ask them, they'll look at me and they either just freeze up and don't have an answer, or they'll ask if uh, they'll shoot some number out and they'll look at me then and say, well, is that good? How about that? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, Patrice, I have no idea how often you eat out or whether you stay at the Four Seasons or the Holiday Inn Express when you go on vacation or whether you travel on a discount airline or a brand name carrier. I don't know how often you redo the house or how you spend on the grandkids. You, you, you have to come up with that number. And now when you do come up with that number, I want to warn you about a few things. You've got to be sure that that number includes consideration for travel 
and fun. You've got to be sure you have something allocated for travel and fun in there. When people make budgets, they tend to just include the basics, food, utilities, gasoline, property taxes, things like that. And if I mention fun money to them, they'll say, well, add 200 bucks a month in for fun. And that's just destined to fail right up front. You can't do much for a few hundred bucks. And I learned that just this weekend. I was in St. Louis visiting my daughter and not surprisingly, also visiting the young man that she is seriously considering. And he spent every waking hour with us as well. And he's a delightful chap. I like him a whole bunch. It's all good. But there were four of us there. And so, Patrice, I live about three hours and a bit away from St. Louis. So there's a drive involved. And, and we stayed two nights. We stayed Friday night and Saturday night. So I, I'm going to um, I'm going to tell you kind of what we spent. And I want you to keep track of the tally, if you would, Patrice. Um, so on Friday night, we went for pizza. And we dropped about 50 bucks on pizza. And then on Saturday morning, we had breakfast and it cost over 70 bucks. And then we went and shopped the old cobblestone streets of St. Charles, Missouri, down on the river. And we probably spent about 25 bucks on cookies and hot chocolate. I know hot chocolate was like 350 for a little styrofoam cup. And that <laughs> evening we went to an Italian place for dinner and the total dinner tab was $230. Oh. And on Sunday we had lunch again, cost about $70. And then after that, uh, the young chap, my daughter's dating, wanted to go to a gun show. And so we went to a gun show that was being held there in St. Charles, and we paid $12 a piece for admission. Now, that's 48 bucks there. My hotel was $180 per night for two nights, and I burned over $100 in gasoline driving up there back. Patrice, what's the total? We're pushing over $800 there, sir. $800 weekend. Yeah. And that was just but it sounds like it was daughter. fun. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah, we had a good time. It was a great time. If you haven't remember, it's been more there. than 200, more than $200 a month. So that's kind of the whole point. It's going to cost you more than you think it will. I want to pause just for a moment and make a recommendation on something you should do if you ever find yourself with extra time in St. Louis. St. Louis is a lovely place. You should go to the Hill, of course, and eat uh, Italian food because uh, the Italian culture in America has a significant portion of its roots back in the Hill. If you followed baseball, Joe Garagiola and Yogi Berra, both Italian names, they came off the Hill in St. Louis. So, so there's a lot good to do there, but everybody wants to go to the arch and, and St. Louis has a famous zoo. But one of the things that is really fun and interesting to do in St. Louis, I think, uh, the, is to just view something very beautiful. The Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis, the old, old Catholic church in downtown St. Louis. Um, so if you have an opportunity to be in St. Louis, don't fail to go spend some time in the Cathedral Basilica. It is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, and I enjoyed it. It reminds me of another story. Patrice, can I have permission to tell another story? Sure. I thought this was just great. You know, St. Louis is the okay, archdiocese, okay. and so they have the archbishop there. And one of the things about the archbishop, you raised the Catholic, so you know how this goes. So the archbishop one day was wearing his archbishop robe, and he had on his jewelry, lots of gold jewelry around his neck. And he happened to have to go somewhere dressed like this, and he stopped by the bank on the way. And this story was told to me by the person who's giving me the tour of the cathedral. So the Archbishop of St. Louis stops by the bank on the way and uh, walks up to the counter where the teller is going to help him. And the teller looks at him and she makes a comment. She says, Wow, that's some nice bling you've got on. 
where did you get it? And the archbishop said, my boss gave it to me. <laughs> so, you know, I, I could just see this happening. Some young, inexperienced kid not recognizing who or what the archbishop was and uh, making a comment about the bling that he had on, which obviously, obviously was substantial. And uh, as a, uh, I, this is where my background comes from. I figured she was one of my people. She was probably a Baptist uh, because, because, you know, our people don't have that kind of bling. But that was just kind of a funny story that came out of my tour of the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis. Sometime we should do a show, Patrice, just about cool places we've traveled to and just talk about fun places and fun things. You know, we might do that. Uh, and it actually relates back to what we're talking about, all of these monthly expenses. Uh, so, so you see, so let me get back on topic, maybe, because I know we both have places to go. Um <clears throat> The point is, in retirement, you're going to spend more money than you think. And you have to build a plan for that into your budget. And there are going to be some non-monthly expenses that you have to put into your budget, like uh, replacing a car. You know, you only do that once every five years or whatever, but what's it going to cost? I'm guessing somewhere between $40,000 and $90,000, depending on what you drive. How often will you do that? You know, I'm going to do it every five years, maybe every eight years. So you've got to build a number into your plan that says, I've got to have this much money every so many years for a car. And then consider healthcare. After 65, you'll get Medicare, but you'll probably still pay a premium for your Medicare supplement. So you have to build all those things into the number. And then you have to consider dental care. I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you how often retirees call and ask us to deposit an extra $10,000 into their account because they just had major dental work. And hearing aids cost just about as much. And if you're ever going to take that trip that you've never taken before, you've got to budget it in there at some point for some time. Kelly and I just booked a trip to Greece uh, for later next spring. And uh, it's setting me back some serious coin that is even causing Barry to kind of catch his breath a little bit and say, really, <laughs> really? And uh, so, so uh, you, you know, maybe not everybody can go to Greece. I know some people couldn't afford that. I get that. Uh, but maybe, maybe they could go to Branson. <laughs> How about that? You know, we're broadcasting. We're broad. Well, <laughs> sometimes it's a little expensive. We're broadcasting from Springfield, Missouri, in the heart of the Ozarks, about 30 miles from Branson, more theater seats than Broadway. Uh, and so maybe that's where a, a great trip is for you. But, but you've got to do some fun things and take some trips with you. And you can't be sloppy and fail to include that in your retirement budgeting. So a lot of times before people are ready to retire, uh, they begin tracking carefully what they're spending for several months prior to retiring. Be sure you add in those vacations, the fun money, the dental, the automobiles, the hearing aids, uh, the health care that may not be covered. And only when you've done that have you built a retirement budget that is sound enough for you to base your retirement plans on it. Now, I know that sounds ominous, uh, really more ominous than it really is. It just takes some effort and you have to be responsible and you alone are responsible for coming up for those right numbers. So kind of all I can say to you is, look, just bear down and do it. Don't worry, by the way, about the inflation. Your advisor will take care of adding that into the calculations, but you have to come up with the monthly after-tax income number. And that's the kind of work that we do every day in our firms. We help uh, clients develop monthly cash flow projections and then forecast them over the rest of their lives 
typically to age 100. And if the numbers work, then they are good and they're ready to retire. And if the numbers don't work, then maybe they need to modify their plans. Because if you retire without planning carefully and being sure the numbers work, well, then what you'll wind up saying is, would you like fries with that? So if we can help you with retirement planning, call us. Retirement design is what we do. We'll consider the tax implications, the investment implications along the way, and do our best to develop a solid plan that allows you to retire with confidence because you know your numbers have been carefully scrutinized and designed to withstand inflation, economic downturns, losing stock markets, health crises, long-term care events, and they're even protected from outlaws. You know what I mean? Your kids brought them home and married them and they became in-laws. And then a few years later, they became outlaws. Well, you want to be sure that your legacy to your children is protected from bad marriages to outlaws and your retirement planning is not done until your estate is planned and your legacy is protected as well. And we can help you with that. Go to www.savingyoutaxes.com and there you'll find a phone number call my office and say, I need to talk to Barry about retirement. And they'll schedule a telephone call for us when we can figure out together whether you're the right client for our firm and whether we're the right firm to help you and whether your situation is such that we can help you and can add value to you. Just yesterday, we had a client we helped up on the northern border, almost up to Canada. And we were able to quantify that we added $5.8 million dollars of value to their income and their estate because we did strategic retirement designs for them. And we took them from running out of money in their mid-80s to making their money last until they were 106 years old. That's what we do. So go to www.savingyourtaxes.com and call us, and we'll see how much value we can add to your situation. Well, I've loved helping you today on the truth about taxes and retirement. On behalf of American Tax Strategies, found on the web at www.savingyourtaxes.com and Wealthcare Investment Advisors, I'm Barry Watts reminding you that when you retire, if you don't get the taxes right, nothing else matters. Now for the lawyer part. Remember, past performance is no guarantee of future results. All investment involves risk. The opinions offered today are not intended to replace consultation with your legal, tax, and financial counselors. Investment advisory services are offered through WealthCare LLC Investment Advisors. Tax and insurance consulting is provided by American Tax Strategies LLC, found on the web at www.savingyoutaxes.com. Thank you for listening to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of SavingYouTaxes.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your own qualified advisor with any questions you may have regarding taxes and investing.